You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Ari Evans, founder and CEO of Maestro. Ari, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, excited we get to do this. I wanted to travel back in time a little bit because your entrepreneurial journey started at a very young age, right? You were 12 years old and you founded an eBay store for Japanese video games. So when I saw that in your bio, I was like, oh gosh, I got to ask him about this. What inspired <laughs> you to start that business? Well, it was kind of serendipitous. eBay had just started to launch, so there wasn't any kind of automated payments or anything like that. It was the early days and I was really into Pokemon cards. So one time we went to a baseball game of all places and we saw that you could, instead of buying just a couple packs, you could buy a box of cards. So I said, oh, well, that seems like a good deal. So bought a box and opened them up and got a lot of things that I wanted. And I said, okay, well, maybe I should sell off the rest of these. And so I went on eBay and tried to sell them and actually went through that successfully. And then I found that there was actually pretty good margin. So my dad saw what I was doing. He was like, wow, this seems pretty cool. So I'm making money at a young age. So he kind of fueled this practice. And then we bought more packs and bought more cars and turned it into an ongoing thing. That's awesome. And what inspired you to do this? Had you always kind of considered yourself entrepreneurial? Was this just in your DNA? You said your dad helped you. Was, are your parents entrepreneurs? So my dad is a small business owner. He owns uh, a kind of small chain of shoe stores in Washington, D.C. So definitely in the blood a bit. And his father also was a businessman. And on my mom's side, they've also got businesses in Mexico City where they're based. So yeah, you could say it kind of runs in the blood. But most of my life has been sitting at the intersection of technology, gaming, and business. In fact, after that eBay store, I was playing a game called EverQuest for many years, and I was buying and selling accounts, much in the same way people buy and sell apartments or houses, right? They'll buy them, they'll improve them, and then they'll flip them and make the spread. So we would buy an account, at the time, it was kind of illegal on a, on a website. And then uh, we'd have all of my friends over in a basement. We'd power level that character and then sell it on Sunday and then split the difference. Wow. The and what was the margin that you were seeing on, uh, on that business back in the day? Uh, we'd make like probably a few hundred bucks each per weekend, maybe five, six hundred bucks each. Not bad for a game you all love playing anyway, huh? Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. What was the hardest part about being a first-time founder? I think that after high school, when I went to college, I realized there were a lot of skills that I was missing to be an effective entrepreneur. And in particular, I wanted to get closer to the technology end of it, right? Really understand how these websites and web products are built. My dad gave me an AOL CD, you know, back when AOL started, he said, hey, figure this out. So I was one of the first kids, you know, kind of playing around with that when I was like 12, 13. So, you know, in college, I went for engineering. So I got an engineering degree in something close to computer science, and I really enjoyed it. And I also got a minor in business and another minor in game design. So you can kind of see these threads continuing on. While I was in college, I was trading, I was trading stocks with the money that I made when I was younger, and I really enjoyed that. So I kind of got distracted from my vision of being an entrepreneur and thought that I wanted to just go work on Wall Street for a while. So I did that. 
that's kind of part of my entrepreneurial journey because I learned about how big companies work and the finance industry, which is, I think, really valuable. Um, but, you know, I wanted to get closer to really building a product. So that kind of followed me when I went to Stanford. And the whole time I was there, I had a small business that I was kind of trying to get off the ground on the side, which was a blog, right? Uh, an electronic music blog back before EDM kind of really exploded in the States. And it was very clear at that time that I was not, I didn't know how to grow it or really how to monetize it, right? We had a big following, but we didn't know what to do with it. So most of the time while I was at Stanford, I had it in the back of my mind trying to apply all my course study to that. Um, and some stuff was helpful. But when I graduated from grad school, I still wasn't really ready to kind of dive in head first. So I went to go become a product manager at Zynga because I thought that was the last kind of really strong missing piece of my toolkit was product. So that was a very eye-opening experience working there for a year before they went public. And I learned a lot about how to develop products, how to manage revenue, how to you know forecast. It was a really good experience. And then finally, when I met Mark Pincus, uh, who's kind of like an informal mentor of mine, I said, hey, this, this guy's really inspiring. If he can do it, I feel like, you know, I should go try to do it myself. So that was my launching point to, to just diving in. How did you meet Mark? Um, I met Mark because Cityville was, you know, the game I worked on at Zynga. It was one of the top producing games. So the PMs on that team were, you know, pretty close. And at a certain point, I suggested to him that, you know, the, the Zynga strategy at the time was a little bit kind of, it wasn't cookie cutter in, in the sense of the games they were making, but something was happening where the PM culture was really, really strong and the PMs shared a lot of best practices with each other all the time to implement into their games. The result of that was that a lot of the games had similar mechanics or similar best practices. I was worried about the future of Zynga if it was all going to be like that. So I suggested that we create a black ops sort of team with a small crew of some of the best talent in the company and we could try projects and experiments that weren't really under the Zynga name, right? And then if those mechanics were working, then we could, you know, actually build a team around them and launch them kind of formally under a new sort of IP brand. Uh, so that was my experience kind of talking about that idea. How was that received? Did you uh, end up implementing that, that special forces Black Ops team within Zynga? <laughs> uh, we had a good start, and we had a lot of great talent that was interested in doing it. But ultimately, the IPO was happening right around mm, there, and sure. you know that took the full focus, so it wasn't a really good time to do a bunch of experiments. Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by your journey, but before we kind of deviate from that path, I want to kind of stay on the Zynga theme, because Zynga was you know, this preeminent leader in the game space around social gaming, which was huge, right, the dawn of Facebook. And it seems like they kind of missed the transition to mobile gaming. You know, After the IPO, the stock suffered, there were leadership changes. What's your take on the gaming space and how it has transitioned since that time? It's a great question. They were in a really amazing position, and they had some of the world's best talent working at the company, which is what excited me so much to be surrounded by these people. I joined the company under the premise that they were going to try to kind of, I wouldn't say standardize things, but create a sort of platform that was independent from Facebook. And there were attempts to do so that never really materialized, um, but in general, you know, when you have a, a company direction heading in a certain way and you're kind of become an aircraft carrier with you know, ton, huge valuation, tons of people, it becomes hard to move it in a different direction. And I think that the, the knowledge, know-how, and people and skill sets that were needed for mobile were quite different. Now, even while I was there, Zynga was making a concerted effort to push in that direction. But like you said, they didn't have the same 
luxuries they had when Zynga first started. It was kind of this unique timing situation where they were very symbiotic with, with Facebook and the newsfeed. Things that we would think were completely ridiculous in the way that we were bugging our friends to play games that are you know, clearly not allowed anymore, but at the time it was more of the Wild West. So when that clamped down, I think it really just changed the dynamics. Yeah. And I guess either way, you have inherent platform risk, right? It just shifted from Facebook to Apple and Google. Uh, and there's still, you know, game developers are paying these heavy tax to the, the distribution pipes. Yeah. And another thing that happened was, I think, in Zynga's quest to IPO, it was kind of like, you know, revenue was very important. And we made kind of concerted decisions to trade off longevity of our player base for short-term revenue. Mm. I remember making those decisions very clearly where even from like a game design perspective, it was clear we were going to be squeezing people harder. There might have been a little bit more churn, but we were going to accept that for the short-term benefits. Um, I think in general, it's not just Zynga, but the whole ecosystem burned out social gaming in a big way, which is why it kind of took a big kind of correction since that time. Well, it's fascinating that you have this experience. You, you study computer science and, and some business at Cornell, and then you work on Wall Street, essentially, right? working at Goldman, first an intern, later as an analyst. Uh, so you get the financial experience. I'm wondering what motivated you to say, I want to go back to grad school, and I've got this kind of EDM music blog that I, I want to get off the ground, and I'm going to make the move you know, cross-country from East Coast to West Coast. What were you thinking at that time, and, and what was it that, that pushed you to, to go to grad school and, and round out the rest of the skill set? While I was working at Goldman, I was kind of living a double life, right? I had my, you know, working super hard, long hours at, at, at Goldman and doing great work there. And then at night, I was like exploring the nightlife world. One of the big perks of running one of the top blogs in the space was I had access to all the parties and, you know, all the events. And, you know, I was really networking hard. So I was really passionate and excited about what I was doing there. And I I just thought that there was a lot of potential, and I saw the direction of where EDM was going, which I thought we were really at the beginning of what was going to be a massive explosion. That massive explosion did happen, so I was right about the wave that was occurring. I think that it just didn't end up being, you know, my perception at the time was, hey, if the addressable market's going to be huge, then there's a big opportunity to go into it, but I wasn't as clear on how to extract the value from the explosion that was occurring, or wasn't clear enough on my analysis of who, which players would be able to extract the value in the space. So that was big learning that came out of that. But ultimately, you know, when I, uh, in college, I had taken a lot of human computer interaction classes. And one of the most impactful courses I took was on the design of everyday things, which was kind of a blessing and a curse because I can't use a faucet or open a door anymore without thinking about the design of those things. <laughs> <laughs> kind of frustrating sometimes. Sure. Um, but it did get me you know, really thinking about design um, and UX. So when most of my job involved writing scripts and pushing numbers around on a spreadsheet and saving money, it just didn't feel creative enough, right? Yeah. So you make the big move, you finish up grad school, and then in 2010, you launch your next venture, a company called Less Than Three, which focused on creating these virtual venues for live events on the web. Tell us about that experience. It seems like maybe the confluence of your time in the nightlife world and in music specifically maybe helped influence that direction? Totally. So one of the things that made me jump from Zynga was that we had these activations with musical artists in the games, 
right? So one of the most famous ones was Lady Gaga. But then I was in charge of integrating a lot of these like brand activations, either with actual brands like McDonald's or musicians into Cityville. So we did an activation with Enrique Iglesias, and I think we did a few more. But at, cer- at a certain point, DJ Tiesto's team came to talk and said, hey, we want to do an integration like that. And I remember the Cityville team turning him down. Hmm. Why is that? Well, they thought that Tiesto's audience wouldn't resonate with the game audience and that he wasn't maybe big enough. Hmm. And I found that to be very strange because most of the player base of Cityville was outside of the U.S. And Tiesto is like a pop culture name in other parts of the world. So I tried to make that argument and spent some time kind of digging into what their strategy was going to be in music, whether they were going to go in that direction at all. And it didn't seem that they were going to. So when, we, when, I, when I left Zynga to join a startup accelerator, which was StartX out of Stanford, we decided like, hey, let's take our knowledge and expertise in music and what we just did at Zynga and turn that into sort of a music project um, where it was like you create a virtual space and you decorate it with musical items that you purchase and there's a rev share to the artist and those objects that you purchase give you access to content. I can't help but think about the Marshmallow concert in Fortnite, right? That was this huge sensation 18 months ago, two years ago, something like that. And you're thinking about this almost a decade before that. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing these integrations while you're at Zynga in Cityville through social gaming before these you know, next generation game engines even existed. Yeah, you've also seen Shopify or Spotify rather recently announced an AR Thing that is very similar, again, to what we were building at the time. So you're right. Uh, one of the things that has been frustrating to me, or I guess just a big opportunity for learning, is timing as a general factor for entrepreneurship, right? It's something that's very hard to get right and something that you need to get right in order to really accelerate the growth of your business. So the more you can kind of think about whether the timing is correct for your business or not will have an impact on the kinds of opportunities I think you should pursue. How do you learn from that? How do you get better at judging timing and making decisions about your business based on that experience? I guess for this one, it's always going to be hard, right? There's a little bit of luck and timing, just factors you can't really control that much in the market. But I think that doing more testing, I know that sounds so simple, but before building anything, just validate these, your thesis more, right? These days, you can literally put up a splash page on Squarespace or Wix in a day and just, you know, spend a little bit of money on marketing and just see if people sign up for that thing and find out what the demand is, right? I mean, very low budget, low-fi ways of validating your idea, I think, are the right ones to pursue. Yeah. That helps you mitigate the risk a little bit, at least. I want to hear a little bit more about what happened with Less Than Three. How did the business go, and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so when we were building this product, it ended up being something like Turntable FM, which kind of had a very uh, short but bright light in the the sun, um, where you could have virtual chat rooms, and people can control the music and take turns DJing the, the sound that was playing in that room. So we had something similar to that. And that kept coming back as the thing that people loved, this real-time interaction with like-minded individuals around content they're passionate about. So at a certain point, you know, we were kind of scaling that up and testing it, but we, we started to realize that the product was really built for a small addressable market, right? Because the percentage of music fans that are going to you know, spend money on or even use that kind of a product is somewhat limited. 
And then there were other problems that we encountered. I'll never forget this story. I was talking to one of the former heads of uh, Napster on the phone. I somehow introduced him all at Stanford. And I pitched him this idea. And he listens you know, carefully. And then at the end, he just says, look, you seem like a smart kid. You should not do this business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You should stay away. And why did he, why did he say to avoid it? Uh, well, he just kind of told me about all the problems that exist in the music industry. And, and you know, it's not a great place to innovate due to every, everything that's happened and how hard it would be to get a business like this off the ground. Uh, but as a young entrepreneur and kind of punky at the time, you know, we all have this attitude of like, well, I don't really care what they say. I'm going to go figure it out on my own. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wish I had taken that advice. Hmm. And since then, I have become way more receptive to feedback like that from others who have gone through experiences because, you know, I don't need to burn my hand on the stove to learn that it's hot. Yeah, Someone sure. else can tell me. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think back to, to that time myself and, and how much music technology has changed, right? At the time, I was using blogs to discover music, right? Like most people right. were on Pitchfork and uh, some of the other kind of music. Hype Machine. Discovery. Yeah, Hype Machine was huge, right? Yep, yep. Um, and then I, I remember using the service called Last FM, yep. which would track all the music that I listened to and kind of give me a, an idea of my top artists and top tracks and recommend what friends were listening to. And all of that has just essentially been replaced by Spotify, right? When, when streaming entered the picture, it kind of changed things forever. And now that's, you know, whatever service you subscribe to, if it's Apple Music, if it's Tidal, you know, if it's any of these other options, Everything is kind of built into that. You're, you're getting discovery through the service, through uh, curated playlists, even though they say most of it's algorithmic, it still feels like there's a lot of human curation there. And you know the sharing, the social elements have all been wrapped up into this, this one new sector. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely changed dramatically. So from that time, and another change that was occurring was that live streams were starting to happen for music festivals. So through our relationships, we, we had... Ultra Music Festival is a close partner and client. And they said, hey, why don't you try to take this product you're building and build it for a music festival? And at, when they said that, we were like, well, what, it, what is that product? You know, we weren't really clear on the, what that would be. And they said, well, we have a live stream coming up. Why don't you figure something out around that? And it was kind of like a blank canvas, right? Just figure it, figure it out. So me and my ex-co-founder moved to Miami to work out of their offices for what was six months and launched the precursor of Maestro for Ultra in 2013. Wow. And you talk about timing. It just strikes me that there's so many confluence of factors that had to have led to this moment, right? The fact that you have music festivals today at the scale that we do is a direct result of the fact that physical distribution sales drop so significantly that one of the only ways to kind of make up the revenue differential is more live events, merchandise, you know, other forms of monetization. And so we've seen this surge of of festival activity and thus, you know, the live streaming technology has progressed to a point where this was technically feasible. Um, so you had won the content, and then you had the technology and the ability to distribute this to a wider audience. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because at the time it wasn't so clear to promoters that they should live stream at all. The main fear was that it was going to impact ticket sales, sure, which is their main source of revenue, so they didn't want to do anything to touch that. Ultra was one of the first to really embrace it, and also Coachella, you know, in the early days. Those two festivals have been sold out for many years. So if your festival's selling out, then certainly you know your opportunities for growth are create more of that festival elsewhere in the world or potentially live stream it mm-hmm. and use those other monetization mechanisms like sponsorship to, to make more money, right, to grow effectively. So it, it was only up until a couple years ago that the festival promoters started to realize, and this actually required some scientific study, that 
the viewers who watch the stream are very likely to buy a ticket and it is not impacting ticket sales negatively. Watching a live stream is just not the same as going to a concert. It's not going to be for a long time. Even with all the stuff we have in VR, it's just not going to be there. So, you know, that was that ended up being a great test bed for us to experiment with what we could do with interactivity for streaming in the music space. And we ended up taking that around to other music festivals like Coachella, which we worked with, and others around the world. And that was going really well for a while, but we realized that, again, total addressable market issue, not enough festival streaming. Two, the concert promoters always wanted to sell a sponsor on it before they you know, agreed to do it with us, and that always happened at the last minute, so it was a scramble. Three, the revenue wasn't really recurring, so you know it wasn't attractive from an investment standpoint. So those were a bunch of learnings that happened at that time as well for like what kind of helping to pattern match what are uh, what are good business opportunities that can scale quickly. Yeah, and you've hinted at this, but you know you're in Miami, you're working in coding what would become Maestro for the Ultra Music Festival initially. Uh, what encouraged you to make this pivot and say this is the opportunity we're learning from the the music festivals that's not where we want to be long term it's kind of an interesting way to test this thesis but you know we're ultimately going to embrace a different market what kind of inspired the brainchild that is maestro hmm so it was around december of 2015 when we took a step back away from what we had built and we said you know what this product seems like it could be used for many other verticals, right? We were getting a little burnt out on what was happen- happening to us in music and some of the attitudes that, were, that we were encountering there. A lot of what they say is true. Um, not a lot of risk tolerance happening there in that, in that space right now, or, and certainly back then. So we said, you know what? Let's try to give it a new brand name. And we distinctly had a strategic decision to spend six months doing a shotgun approach to try different verticals to figure out which one was going to be the new beachhead that we were going to focus on. Right? So over the next six months, we did a bunch of different things. We did a fashion show live stream with H&M. We did a, obviously a bunch more music stuff. We did something with Iron Man. Uh, and eventually, and I'll, I'll thank this, this guy forever, my friend Ryan Gutierrez, also known as Gutex, He's a street fighter coach and competitive player and also a DJ. And he ended up being the link to eSports. So we met with him one time and he said, you know, this is great for music. I understand why it would be used there, but you should really take it into eSports. And I asked him, well, what's eSports? And he responded with something like, well, how can you not know what eSports is? You're a hardcore gamer. You've been doing this, you know, your whole life pretty much. I've been playing games since I was four. Um, so I said, well, you know, tell me about it. Show, show it to me. You know, I'm open for new experiences, and I was kind of ready for that anyway. So he said, come with me to the Capcom Cup. It's the number one. It's the finals of Street Fighter. So I went with him. I think it was at the Bill Graham Auditorium in San Francisco that year. And I will never forget the moment of walking into this venue and just seeing him basically be a local celebrity inside of this community and realizing that if I was a kid... If I were a kid at that time, I would have gone to all of those events. These are your pro athletes. Yeah. You know? That's what makes it feel real is going to an event and kind of experiencing it firsthand. I yeah. think, that, yeah, certainly. And I think the other thing about it was just community. Mm-hmm. I remember watching movies like The Wizard and wondering where on earth that was happening, 
right? Like, how do I get to the tournaments? How do I find these people who are like, like-minded? Because, you know, especially when we were kids, gaming was still a little bit more taboo, right? So I was looking for that community. And I did find it like on the internet a little bit, but to find it in person would have been better. So basically after this, after this event, I was super fired up. And my friend Ryan took me to meet with Capcom, who makes Street Fighter, and we ended, they ended up being our first customer. It happened pretty quick. Amazing. Yeah, and this was good timing because we were running out of money <laughs> with our business and trying to figure out, like, okay, well, what are we going to go into now? We had tried going after musical artists, like individual artists, and that wasn't really working. We'll go into the reasons later. So after Capcom came aboard, within six months, we picked up EA and ESL and PlayStation. And that was a lot of really big names to pick up in a short period of time. So we said, you know what? We're going to be an esports company now. And we just pivoted to be an esports company. And, and obviously that space has significantly accelerated and evolved over the last five years since you've entered that market. Uh, what are the most exciting, what are the biggest changes that you've observed during that time? It's been absolutely crazy. I think we were very fortunate to get into it when we did, where we were able to kind of be in there before the hype to show, you know, there's some kind of like hipster cred, I guess, about that. <laughs> uh, it also helps that I, I personally speak the language because I've been a gamer since I was a kid. We have seen just the mainstream adoption of esports and kind of acceptance. We're almost at the acceptance stage, I'd say, on a global basis for what is happening. By far, one of the biggest things that has changed is just the amount of investment that's poured in, which has been absolutely wild and inspiring to see. We're now talking about billions of dollars being flowing into esports investments and the surrounding ecosystem. I think team valuations have grown in some cases a little out of control mm -hmm. and that sort of became sort of a hype area. We've also seen the world kind of get clear on the fact that the publishers hold most of the cards and they're going to create most of the value and they're going to extract most of the value for the esports space. And then in the gaming space, it's going to be the big platforms and the top 1% of streamers who are really commanding most of the revenue. So that's kind of the way the ecosystem is structured today. I think that there is a lot of opportunity to change that further because one of the biggest things that's an open question mark in esports is where's the money going to come from? I mean, even for the publishers, up until recently, even huge titans like Riot, they were running League of Legends Championship Series at a dramatic loss. I think over $100 million being spent that they've discussed wow. publicly. Yeah. And just all in service of the community or as an investment in, you know, ultimately one day we think, you know, sponsorship revenues are going to catch up, media sales rights are going to be there, uh, you know, there's going to be product placement opportunities. What are they thinking about this long term? I think if you'd asked them that question, you know, a few years ago when, when this all started, they would not have said that they had any of that in mind. Esports still is predominantly a marketing expense for game developers. It is only in the last year that P&Ls are being separated from the game business and the esports side of the business, which is a really critical catalyst because then you start thinking about how to derive unique revenue for esports directly, right? And this all comes down to how the games make money, right? Just follow the money. The money flows in-game from microtransactions. So the marketing play was to keep the, it's, you know, it's kind of churn prevention, player growth, health, to keep them spending in game. When you start to have the esports side of the business separated, then that chain is different. 
right? Or there at least needs to be some kind of almost internal revenue share between the game team and the esports team and potentially the platform where it's streaming on. And the economics of those deals are, I mean, it's the Wild West right now. I think it will happen. I think in-game transactions in the stream is the biggest untapped opportunity for esports monetization right now. Tell us more about that. What do you mean by in-game monetization during a stream? Basic gist is, you know, you're, you're watching some game being played. And while you're watching, an offer comes up, let's say for a flash sale or for a particular skin or for a particular item. And you can click on that overlay and then purchase your digital item to be fulfilled to your account with like one click. Like it should be as easy as Amazon purchasing is. I don't, it's almost surprising that we haven't done this yet because it seems like so obvious and such a low hanging fruit. But a lot of these games aren't architected to be able to do that. And there's other wrinkles to the problem. For example, even if we were going to do a transaction on stream for, let's say, Street Fighter V, right, which is available on PlayStation and Steam, if we want to entitle your account, like your PlayStation account, with this item that was purchased, PlayStation needs to get a cut of that because of their agreement with the publisher, even though they're not really in that chain at all. And there is no you know, mechanism or infrastructure to handle that kind of you know, automated payouts for those kinds of things. So until we cross that hurdle, we're, you know, we're being held back by technical issues a little bit, political issues, right? It's also not a great time for, for PlayStation to be focused on this because they're launching the PS5 this year, right? So timing, again, is rearing its head on this thing, right? So I, I think it will happen. It's just a matter of time, but these are some of the issues that are in the way of it. Well, I'm curious to understand what are some of the biggest differences that you observe in the enterprise streaming that Maestro facilitates versus what I would think most listeners are more familiar with, which is consumer streaming on something like YouTube, Twitch, you know, even Facebook, some of the, the previous streaming platforms. Uh, what are the biggest differences? Sure. I think that in general, businesses have been slower to adopt streaming and learn about what they want to do with it, right? There's been a lot more innovation happening at the consumer level with the tooling and the platforms and discovery and to some extent monetization. But I think that the enterprise has been really underserviced, right? The, the major players that have been in that space have been guys like Ustream or Livestream, which have been mostly about video delivery and not really about how to leverage the fact that viewers are watching your content into something that impacts your bottom line. And this all stems from how did video evolve to where it is now, right? We came from TV. So for the most part, and I, I sometimes say that I think the biggest tragedy of live streaming is that it is a TV broadcast that is on the internet instead of an internet first designed experience. We're talking about a century old format. Why are we still doing this one-way broadcast thing, right? We know who's on the other end of the line, and we can personalize the experience to them. We can certainly get them to take some kind of action, right? Leverage all the power of what's been built into the web over the, you know, since the web came around, and we're just not doing anything with it. We're just having people sit back and watch. So for an enterprise to wrap their head around, well, what should I have my audience do while they watch is a new thing. Or, okay, well, how could I know who the audience is? And then even if, when I get that information, how can I weave it into other parts of my organization? One of the things that we constantly bang our heads against the wall is the fact that you know internal teams at companies don't really talk to each other. And the way that a big enterprise company does content is they hire a third party that is really good at content production to come in and figure that out for them because you know they make games. That's not what they do. 
And that team gets judged on the quality of the content, right? And that's kind of it. You know, there is no other part of the company that's typically talking to these people. The merchandise people should be talking to them. The e-commerce people should be talking to them. Social should be talking to them. Sometimes those are completely siloed teams. It's just kind of crazy the way that it works today when really we should be looking at video as kind of like the, the backbone of your communication with your clientele. And then that should feed intelligence into your other systems. And I guess the underlying theme is it all comes back to interactivity, right? You think about television as the initial model. Television is a one-to-many broadcast architecture. And then you think about, okay, well, we're adapting those tropes to what is now live streaming. So if you think about Twitch, okay, sure, it's still one-to-many broadcasting. But instead of unidirectional, it's bidirectional now. And people can communicate with the broadcaster, the streamer. What you're saying is, forget that. Let's do many-to-many communication with enterprise live streaming where we put the brand or the game publisher at the center, and then we're facilitating these new layers of interaction and dialogue between all the, the observers that, who now also become participants. Yeah, I'm, I think you need a little bit of both, right? You want some ability for the broadcaster to interact with the audience and for them to respond or react back, potentially impacting what's happening with the content. And you also want situations where the audience can just have social experiences with each other and with their friends. Right, Twitch made a very important impact in the industry. Where you know, at the beginning, it sounds so obvious now, but just put a chat next to the video. I mean, that was new at the time, right? And now it's pretty commonplace. So we're just at the point now where we're starting to think more about, okay, well, how do we go further than this, right? How do we get people to transact easily in the stream? How do we get them to express their sentiment? How do we ultimately segment the audience and understand the differences between them? Right? And this plays into your engagement and your monetization strategy. We use the example in gaming because it's pretty obvious, but you know, if you knew something about the viewer, you'd probably change your ideas on how you wanted to extract revenue from them. In gaming, you have, in esports in particular, you have people that have the game and play the game and are watching. You have people that are watching but do not yet own the game, but they might buy it. And then you have people that are watching who are not going to buy the game. Right? They're just going to be viewers. Your monetization strategy for each one is different. The people that you have that already own the game, you want to sell them more in-game stuff. The people that don't own the game yet, you want them to convert to getting the game. And then the person who's just watching, that might be t- something completely different, like giving them flair for their you know, streamer account or giving them some way to express their status within the community, things like that. Right. So this is why we want to use interactivity it's to differentiate those viewers and then combine that data set with the data set that the publisher already has and then use targeting and personalization to deliver a unique experience to each of these audience segments. Do you see the potential to do that on the B2C side as well? Are Twitch and you know, YouTube streaming, are they making advances to encourage additional interactivity on the platforms? They are. I think that there's a desire to figure it out. You know, Twitch has, I think, made the most progress with Twitch extensions. Twitch extensions themselves haven't been super successful overall, and there's a, there's a bunch of reasons for that. But it's definitely trending in the right direction of like, hey, how do we put power into developers' hands to start to figure out what these new types of formats are going to be? YouTube is mostly a VOD company. I think today we saw that in gaming in particular, live only makes up 17% of the total pie, and that has not changed from last year to this year or well, 2018 to 2019. So what does that say, right? Does it mean that they shouldn't invest 
in developing their live product, I think they want to, right? And we've met with some people there that have expressed their desire to continue to innovate in that area and in some ways catch up, if you will, to what Twitch might have today. So we're seeing some of that happen. We're also seeing just creation tools get much better on the, on the uh, consumer side, things like TikTok and Instagram. Those are some of the best-in-class solutions right now where you just like easily make amazing short-form content from your phone, right? And I think a lot of those learnings are going to kind of be carried over into other platforms. People have started decrying the fall of Twitch, right? That, oh, its share of, of live streaming watch time is slipping. I wonder if that is the case or if, you know, platforms like Facebook Gaming and YouTube are now just leaning more aggressively into live streaming. And it's inevitable that, you know, Mixer, Caffeine, so these newer entrants and then the more established players are just starting to round out that ecosystem and, and thus stealing a bit of market share away from Twitch. Yeah, I mean, I think Twitch... And some of the founders will tell you this. They've done a lot of things right, but, but they really had timing on their side, right? It was a very unique timing situation. I've talked to, you know, guys at Sony and others before, and I asked, like, okay, what was it like back then when Twitch wanted to build an integration into your console so people could share easily to it? And there were just, like, timing factors about why that was a good idea at the time and not fully realizing the value of the resulting content or where it was going or any, what was being done with it. You know, a lot of publishers, I think, are a little peeved about the fact that they didn't benefit monetarily from Twitch's acquisition uh, by Amazon, right? So there's a little bit of that kind of lingering, but I think Twitch still sits in an amazing position. They are clearly trying to differentiate in some new ways. They're going pretty heavy into sports. Um, IRL has become the, like, the biggest channel outside of you know, gaming channels that is working for them. So they're clearly looking at like, how do we take what we've built here and expand upon it into new areas. Do you see that, I mean, you mentioned five years ago, those markets weren't really there for other categories in enterprise live streaming. Do you think that fashion, entertainment, music are catching up to uh, realizing the potential of this technology? In short, no. <laughs> I think it's still gonna take a while. There's been a lot of kind of false starts, right? Where there was a bunch of activity in live streaming and then things cooled off a little bit. And I think it's coming back around with kind of this like new idea on what it's about and what the tooling should be and all that, right? The tools really do afford what the benefits and what the value is going to be for, for those creators, uh, enterprise creators. And I think, you know, again, getting past views as the main metric is something that must happen. A publisher, like a video game publisher, just, you know, what do views m actually mean? for your business. It's really hard to correlate it. It's all gotta come back to identifying the viewer, understanding what that view does to you know their in-game behavior or their in-app behavior, right? We work with Adobe and they do the same thing. They integrate Adobe ID and they find out after they teach people how to use their apps if they end up using them more or spending more in the app, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is the kind of knowledge and workflow that needs to go into enterprise streaming these days. We gotta get past views as the be all end all metric. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media space, what would they be? Who? Um, one of the things I think is shaping live streaming is that the use cases are becoming increasingly diverse. Content itself is becoming more niche, or rather niche content is succeeding more than it ever has in the past. So the confluence of those two things means I think we're going to see a, a wider variety of smaller, more experimental types of 
streaming offerings that are really geared to particular communities and particular content that might monetize in ways that we've never seen before. You know, Andreessen Horowitz has this passion economy thesis and all these like new creator platforms, how they're monetizing fandom in, in ways that we haven't really seen before. Things like Patreon, right, where you subscribe to a creator and others that are of that ilk. Substack, there's a bunch that are like this, right? So one of the ideas we're seeing in the market and playing around with ourselves actually is, okay, let's say you take the current model and you flip it on its head. Instead of doing this like CPM, flat CPM rate thing for mass audiences, what if you could just extract a lot more value from way fewer people? What would that look like? Right? What's the VIP streaming experience? And then if you have a tool like that, what does it mean for content creators to start thinking differently about their content strategies, right? Maybe not all the content I make is public and free. Maybe there is something that I hold back that's kind of elevated and that's for my premium audience, right? We've seen, I think we'll see more of that. I also think that, you know, we're starting to see more like as subscriptions become more norm and accepted, we're seeing people lean into that harder. In the esports space, we see Riot doing ProView, which is like you get some premium point of view access and live stats integration and things like that. That thing's priced at $12.99 or $9.99. And I think that that price point is completely wrong. I've told this in them myself, right? The, the percentage of the audience that wants something like that, which is very sophisticated, is going to be small. But to those people, it's extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. So it should be a lot more expensive for a smaller audience. And then I think it will be a real successful revenue driver for them. So I think we're just going to see a lot more experimentation on price and pricing models. Yeah, I love that point about finding more effective ways to price discriminate because particularly in the category you're focused on, gaming and esports, that's the whole business model, right? Whales make up the majority of monetization if you think about some of the most successful titles like a World of Warcraft historically or more recently like a PUBG, a Fortnite. That's how you're going to most effectively capture value from the people who are spending the most time and money within the gaming environment. Absolutely. And that goes back to this whole idea we're pitching about you know, interactivity and why it matters. You know, you want to figure out who's who so that you can price discriminate in some ways. And, you know, that kind of sounds like evil or negative, but it's really all about, you know, you got fans that want to spend money. They have different willingness to pay. And how do you just let them spend up until what they want to spend with you? Exactly. Tailoring right. the experience and thus the value exchange for each viewer. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Now, you can't do infinitely different price points because that's hard to maintain, but I think we're going to see you know, more tiering and more experiments in that area. What does the future hold for you and for Maestro? Our position to play is how do we square spaceify the creation of interactive streams, right? We want to help broadcasters build strong relationships with their audiences. We think the way to do that is through interactivity. We prove that from the audience spending more time and money with the broadcaster, right? That seems to be what most enterprises want, right? <laughs> so we want to continue on that mission we're doing that by opening up a lot of APIs to let other people build on top of our core systems and, of course, add new functionality, getting better with the targeting parameters, finding ways to make it easier for publishers to create that full circle understanding of their viewer. And then we're also experimenting with what is a version of Maestro that could be for individual creators, given the huge total addressable market that's going on there and some of the unrest that you've described where I don't think creators are completely happy with what's out there. Two pain points are people want to be discovered better they want to make more money. Are there ways to solve those two problems that can be powered by interactive experiences and paywalls? If so, we want to try to figure those out. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? <laughs> a 
what would I do? Well, I'd go back to something I raised earlier, which is whatever idea I have, I would like to validate it as as kind of cheaply as possible. You know, I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs these days, and that's one thing I tell them all the time. Don't build anything. Right? I know it's exciting to build and create new things. Believe me, I love that myself too. But it's smarter if you are sure you're building the right thing for the right market. Right? Solve a very clear pain point that is a painful pain. Do it really, really well. And make sure that the pain is you know, painful for enough people that it can become a big enough business. Certainly from an investment standpoint, if you have those two things nailed and you've got a you know, great team, you're very likely going to receive an investment. You just got to keep it really simple, right? Validate your idea as cheaply and effectively as possible, measure three times, and then cut once. Yep, great advice. Always uh, think about the timing, as we've discussed. Yes. Make sure that you are conscientious about listening to the customer base. Don't just build and hope they'll come. Test and learn and then continue to grow as you, as you go along. Absolutely. Ari, where can people find out more about you and more about Maestro? So you can find out more about me on you know, LinkedIn. Just look me up or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mario Ario. That's an old screen name I've been using <laughs> since I was 12. I like it. I like it. Uh, yeah. And you can find out more about the company at maestro.io. Terrific. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for telling us a little bit more about your journey and sharing, you know, changes to the music, the gaming space, esports, right, the future of live streaming. It's been such a fun, wide-ranging discussion. So I really appreciate you making the time. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.